Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. With me, as always, is that traitorous goblin lord, Jeff Goad. <laughs> Hello. And I'm your co-host, Hoy. This week, we're very honored to have as our guest, Caroline Stevermer, author of, amongst other works, The Glass Magician from Tor Books, which just came out in 2020, the College of Magic series, and the co-author, along with Patricia Reedy, of the Sicilian Kate series. Hello, Caroline. Hello. Thank you very much for inviting me. And thanks to your listeners for tuning it in. Yay, welcome to the show. Welcome, welcome. So this week we are, uh, well, actually, let's get to you, Caroline. Uh, I would really love to hear, um, you've been had a, a very uh, illustrious career. How did you get into uh, fantasy, uh, speculative fiction? Um, you know, what was your sort of inciting incident? You know, Well, I loved Lord of the Rings, and the Ballantine edition had a, a distinctive cover for all three books. And partly because I presume they sold so well. They had, uh, I think it was Lynn Carter's line of books that were kind of like Lord of the Rings, but not, but the covers made them look like they were exactly. And that is how I came specifically to the Wormoroboros. And I was 15 and I, I grew up on a farm. So my access to libraries was pretty limited, but once a week, my parents would, my mom would drive to the nearest city and, we would ransack the library and a block away was a paperback bookstore. And I bought, I think for 50 cents, the brand new uh, Wormer Overos and really didn't know what hit me. I had never encountered language like that. And I think the first hundred pages are really rough going, but I lived on a farm, you know, aside from chores, what else was there to do? So, uh, I hadn't realized until I reread it. And then I had read uh, one of my very early books, The Serpent's Egg, has just come out in an e-edition, uh, a digital edition. And so I had to read the proofs for that. And I hadn't read it in 30 years. I am really amazed at the influence I saw, that it was completely unconscious. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had no awareness of it at the time. But that this book in particular really set a template. Uh, overall, my my confirmed nerdiness happened in college. The very first day of college, I met Ellen Kushner, author of Swords Point and the Riverside books. And I had never met anyone who, any. I had always written stories, but I never thought of them as anything but stories. And when I met Ellen, we had a lot in common. We'd read many of the same books and she was writing a novel. And I had, would you like to read the draft? Like, well, yes, of course I would like to read the draft. And I had never met anyone who talked about writing that way. And I had no awareness myself that you could decide to write a novel or write a short story. I just wrote stories. So Ellen opened this, the cue of the celestial choir, the pearly <laughs> gates open. Here's how you do it. It's an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, only type on one side, double space, leave a margin. And the world just rocked. And wow, that's amazing. how I got into it. Amazing. And I noticed um, 
and maybe again this was subconscious because you may uh, i think you believe your background is in art history right uh, yeah yeah and you mentioned also on on your uh website there that uh nicholas hilliard was your favorite artist. so then you're already you're thinking about this sort of renaissance and then leading into the elizabethan and elizabethan uh, of which Wormoroboros is very much influenced. So was do you think that was subconsciously from Wormoroboros too, or was it just like a cuck? It quite, you know, I had never thought of it, but you quite, you might be right, because my first exposure to Nicholas Hilliard was a theater poster for the Shakespeare Festival in Canada, in Ontario. And they had, for their poster that year, a an enlargement of uh, a painting by Nicholas Hilliard called Young Man Among Roses. And I was so smitten with this image that I actually ended up specializing in his work. And now that I have Wormeroboros fresh in my mind, I'm thinking, this could easily be Brandach de Ha. I mean, <laughs> it's an image, right? The language is sort of a cod Elizabethan mm-hmm. and, or Jacobean, perhaps. And it fits the atmosphere very well. Mm-hmm. But I had never made that connection. So right, right. cool. Thanks, Hoy. Right. And actually, I, I, mean, I think when we start talking very deeply about the book, I think it's interesting because there's these depictions of masculinity, what is constitutes Elizabethan masculinity. I mean, we hear about the swagger and the sword duels, but the actual physical depiction is very different from what we consider hyper-masculine today, right? So that would be interesting to talk about. Um, so uh, in this course of this career, what else have you um, drawn upon that maybe has surprised you and said, hey, this is... Um, you know, I, I didn't think, uh, I think you mentioned Mark Twain as potentially being one of your, your major influences. Oh, yeah, absolutely. A family idol. Uh, I grew up on a dairy farm, maybe 10 miles from the Mississippi River, the upper stretch of the river. And Mark Twain was like Shakespeare and other popular people in our house. And, you know, he could do no wrong. And he had been a riverboat pilot and on the upper Mississippi River, as well as the lower, which mm-hmm. everybody thinks of as the Mississippi River. And hardly anybody wrote about the Upper River, which is where we lived. And so to me, that was a touchstone for a lot of things because he got he traveled all over the world. He wrote extensively about his trips. He had lecture tours and so forth to support himself and his family. And that viewpoint was a gateway for me to get exposed to a lot of different things. When he went to the Hawaiian Islands, he mentioned how many mosquitoes there were, uh, which, uh, you know, I hadn't really associated mosquitoes with the Hawaiian Islands before, mm-hmm. things like that. Right. And I think it's funny because America, uh, Mark Twain is the most quintessentially American author, but he's also an incredible fantasy author, right? Because he wrote Connecticut and King, King Arthur's Court. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also, I think to a certain extent, there is a fantasy element in the, in, in even in his stuff that's uh, he might have considered more reality based. I mean, mm-hmm. there's that whole. It is. I think it's Adam's diary when Adam and Eve get chucked out of Eden. Mm-hmm. Mark Twain wrote like what happened next. He wrote a, a sequel. There you go. <laughs> and I think that's um, something that maybe um, and maybe we can talk about that uh, a little later. But uh, now there's sort of very. Um, sort of uh, maybe on the basis of marketing, very distinct ideas of what constitutes fantasy and science fiction and realistic literature. And I think those are relatively recent and artificial silos that have been created maybe in the last 40 to 50 years, I think. Um, And and I think uh, over the course of your career, I I wonder if that's had some effect on on like how you are presented as an author. Without question, I wouldn't be writing full time if it hadn't been for the the explosion of YA. I had written uh, College of Magics and Scholar of Magics 
and they were published as, and when the king comes home, uh, they were published as um, adult fantasy. And then when YA blew up, they got reprinted as YA without changing a single word. And so the fact that these are still in print is completely uh, a gift from the marketing department. <laughs> <laughs> so, there you go. so it has its uses after all. Uh, yeah, to, to, yeah. I mean, there's so much, I guess, out there just to be able to uh, at least uh, get people in the right direction, looking in the right direction, I think, marketing. Okay. And do you feel like the siloing of adult fantasy and YA fantasy is also a little bit of a false division? Or do you feel like there really is a big difference in these two genres and how we approach them? I really am not. I'm I'm too old to answer that question usefully, I think. Um, I know that I do read in the field and I regularly have my socks knocked off by what's going on right now with N.K. Jemisin and... Uh, I mean, just incredible, incredible writing happening right now. And like the city we became, for example, uh, is I, that might not be YA, but uh, but and it was certainly published as and it won a, a Hugo as the adult uh, fantasy. Um, and I think because of the marketing success of uh, juvenile dystopias that have really like Hunger Games and mm-hmm. Ready Player One or what have you. Uh, in fact. I was just at a discussion earlier today about, you know, thank God for the dystopias. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so. Right, right. But yes, you can sort of see that strain um, because uh, I think the only book we've read of hers is so far is the fifth season, but still has that sort of formation of character that is present a lot of times in, in YA fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I guess is kind of very much the opposite of the one because they're fully fledged. I think the characters, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and they don't have parents. Yeah. This most recent reread, I just noticed, we never think, we never hear about King Juss being the son of the old king, whoever. Uh, it's like a Disney movie in that. There's no parents in it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I guess to uh, any other uh, uh, prehistory questions there, Jeff, or uh, should we get oh, to the... Well, yeah. just... <laughs> I'd just be curious what you would recommend our listeners read for gaming inspiration. Oh, all right. Because I'm not a gamer myself, I'm only vestigially aware of gaming, and I have heard of Animal Crossing, for example, and some of these gentler games that got quite popular during the lockdown. Yeah, That's why I have the nerve to recommend this book by a friend of mine, Kelly Jones. Uh, she's based in Seattle. She writes middle-grade fantasy, and her very first book is Unusual Chickens for the Exceptional Poultry Farmer. What a great title. Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> and and it's a, uh, none of you can see the cover, but the cover is amazing. I mean, it's, it's got illustrations. And the premise is it's epistolary. Uh, a little girl who's had to move to the country, uh, a very white part of the country, and she's uh, Latinx, I believe. And she is corresponding with her deceased grandmother, who has left her, they've left the farm, with, she, she has responsibility for the chickens that were left on the premises and she discovers they have superpowers it's great amazing <laughs> need i say more <laughs> <laughs> okay so uh as we get into the discussion of the book let's first start with uh what editions of the book we're working with oh good question uh, and uh shall we uh jeff you have yours in front of you there yeah so yeah. i'm working with the ballantine fantasy with the Barbara Remington cover, 
Barbara Remington, who did those amazing Tolkien illustrations for the Ballantine series as well. And the particular one that I have is the eighth U.S. printing from October 1974. Wow, that's probably that's probably very. If it's not the same exact edition I grew up on, it's it's very close. I'm I'm dealing with the hardcover that I paid big bucks for. Oh wow! Yeah. Uh, it is the uh, second U.S. edition, so it has the essay that they included in the 73-74 version from Ballantine. It has the James Stevens essay, Great. but it is, it's got exactly the same illustrations. And I, I couldn't tell you if the page count is exactly the same, but I hope so. And I wouldn't be surprised. There you go. Um, I was reading the, uh, Wormoroboros is currently in public domain, uh, but the there's a complete electro ebook set including the Zimiambian trilogy, I guess. So I was reading that, and also, although I have a copy of the Valentine Yay! as well, uh, I also had found a few years back the Dell trade paperback. Ooh, oh, wow! With a got a hippogriff right yep, there. Yeah, with a hippogriff right on there, and it's a Tim uh, Hildebrandt cover who used to do oh. uh, the Hildebrands used to do all those. Uh, Tolkien uh, calendars back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And it also has pretty extensive footnotes, uh, not particularly scholarly, but but just sort of informative footnotes by Paul Edmund Thomas. And Excellent. also an introduction by him. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Oh, and it's also worth mentioning that while I was reading the book, I was also listening along with the aud- Audible audiobook, which is narrated by Chris McDonald. There you go. And um, this book... I think if we were talking about Hygaxian words, as uh, we could probably go all day, <laughs> uh, I have a candidate, but uh, Caroline, do you have a particular word that you really love from this book that you think that, uh, you know, whether it's antique or even just, uh, Ooh, you know? What a good question. Well, all right. As of this morning, I, if I had more time to think about this, I'd pick a different word. But uh, you had mentioned how our ideas of standard masculinity are not what's going on here. Uh and there's a, a scene near the end where our heroes have finally triumphed over the very bad guys. And one of, uh, one of the very bad guys is, is on his deathbed. He has his final words. And he has taken the castle that, we, that was Brandach Rahaz. And when they finally had to give it up, he trashed it. And then this is happening quite a bit later in the book. But um, his last words are, how look thy womenish gewgaws since I toused them. And now today, toused is my word. My Gygaxian word is toused. Toused. Nice. That's a good one. Great. All right. I have, it's a relatively simple word, but I think it's pretty important. And it appears multiple times. Read. Read. R-E-D-E. And it appears at least 30 times in this text. It's an Right. Archaic word uh, meaning advice or counsel given to one person by an uh, by another. Um, although, actually, frankly, I think we still do use it because we say, "Hey, what's your read on this?" Right? Oh. Uh, but we think of it R E A D. But I yeah. think it's really R. It really is R E D E. Right? So there you go. And, and we we joke about the English king Ethelred yeah. the Unready, right. but that was unready. Right. That he just you know bad advice. Right. Bad advice. <laughs> We should have a bad Amazing. advice column somewhere on the internet, just to give everyone wrong advice. Uh, bad oh, reads. I, yeah, I could help with bad advice. I'm pretty good at dishing that out. Hey, that's uh, my job. There we go. So, so um, uh, I, I think it's 
uh, fair to say that this is a formative book, but you think you brought up an interesting point that the first hundred pages um, oh. is, can be tough. If, if right. you have anything else to do in life, you're never going to make it through the first hundred pages. <laughs> yeah, I was. So before the recording, we meet up with a bunch of our patrons and we have kind of a book club with our patrons. And in the book club with our patrons, I had said that I absolutely would have picked up this book, even if it hadn't been a part of this project, but I would not have finished it had it not been for this project. Wow. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd say the first 200 pages for me, I was... I, I wasn't really feeling it. It was really a slog for me. I was very confused who all these characters were, especially when we've got uh, Corinius, Corsus, Corund. Like, I was getting all of these things confused. But somewhere around page 200, it just suddenly all clicked into place. And I suddenly knew exactly what was going on. And I was fully on board. But it took a while oh, to yeah. get me there. Oh, it's, it's as if he's made a mission. Of making this inaccessible and boring <laughs> and, and ridiculous. I mean, if you're a visual reader at all, the interior decoration alone right. is going to kill you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like when you read um, um, Hunchback of Notre Dame, and it's like, why Why are you explaining the Cathedral of Notre Dame for 30 pages to me? Like, right, right. Just tell me it's pretty. Tick, tick. And we can move right. on. Tick, tick. <laughs> I don't need to know about each flying buttress. Yes. Right, right. I think for my part, I'm looking at here, I think it's not literally the first hundred pages. In my page, I think the the chapter uh, second chapter is the the wrestling for demon land, and so it's only eighteen pages in. But I think it's that first seventeen pages feel like a hundred pages. Yes. And then, yeah. <laughs> oh, and it's the, like Taming of the Shrew, where it yeah. starts with a frame story, yeah. and then you know what? It, you know, we we get like another reference to Lessingham like eighteen pages in, and then he vanishes into yeah. thin yeah. air. Such a mystery. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for those who are listening who haven't read the book, it starts off with a dude in our world who then, like, I guess, looks through a telescope and is transported to Mercury, where he is invisible and intangible and seems to get to be who's the person who's going to be witnessing all of these events. But then we just kind of never hear from him again. Right. <laughs> We're just in that world now. Mm -hmm. I guess, uh, so two things to that. So the page count, I think it's, it's, it's not literally the page count because I think the wrestling to, to me is where it really comes alive. And then uh, mm. even in the first yeah. hundred pages is, is the uh, Gorisa Twelfth's, you know, magical ritual, which is incredible. And all there that. were great moments early on. Yeah. I just still didn't fully understand who these people were and kind of what the context of these characters were, even during these great moments. Sure. Like that wrestling scene was phenomenal. For sure. But I guess it was, I guess the funny thing to think about is this book was uh, published in 1922, although we know that um, Edison was living with this book since he was a child, you know, of literally wow. 10 years old. Wow. Um, but this is 10 years after like John Carter. Right. And, and Edgar wow. Rice Burroughs. And wow. that could have very like super modern, fast, like, you know, one thing after another kind of thing. And then we have this mm -hmm. thing, which is like this artifact that just dropped out of nowhere. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like kind of an overlong Dunsany. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and he he drops in cultural references. I mean, he. Wow. I, I'm sure that whatever Greek said this thing I'm going to allude to, and I'm sure it was out of copyright by the time he got to it. But there's a scene where we have a farm wife who's grinding corn or grain, and she's singing, uh, grind mill grind, Corinius grinds us all, kinging it in widowed crothering, which is Ranachtaha's castle. Imagine my surprise in college when I ran across a Greek text 
grind mill grind, Greek dictator, I don't remember the name, grinds us all, kinging it in widowed, and I think it was Corinth. So he was actually just, I mean, like like all the other pieces of poetry that he throws in, he references, it, you know, you know, who wrote this really in the footnotes or so forth, uh, the mm. bibliography. Uh, but really, I mean, he's just taken stuff from all of Western European literature. Sure, sure. Just, Norse, Norse yes, epics, yeah. the Shakespeare, the Jacobean plays. Yeah. Um, and the Greeks. And, the and even though there's no reference to real Christianity or, th- or this happening kind of within our world in that kind of context, randomly Satan was mentioned twice, two pages in a row, and then never heard from again. <laughs> either. Good yeah. eye. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Was that, uh, was that, uh, course, course, Carcinius who was swearing by Satan? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. I don't remember. Yeah, but, wow. Yeah. It's a couple of times like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like such a, and I'm not a scholar of language. I mean, I've read a little bit of Webster and, and some Shakespeare and, and Marlowe back in high school, but, um, I've, was reading on the Wikipedia page that Le Guin, Ursula K. Le Guin said that he like was perfect at it. He never like broke character. And, and, and if he's anachronistic and for any reason, it's because he's deliberately anachronistic. It's not by mistake in this text. So yeah. what an act of will to oh. actually be able to do this, you know, yeah. <laughs> what got you to persevere? And then, uh, you know, uh, your first time or second time reading this book, Caroline, in terms of, of getting that. And- One of the things that I loved about it was how, I love books where places have names. And one of the things I loved about Lord of the Rings was that the landscape is another character and every knob, every boulder practically has a name in like five languages. And I loved that. And in this case, the, um, as I was rereading it, I came across a passage that I must have, I must have persevered to, where is it here? When they're coming home to demon land after they get sprung from the prison in, from being incarcerated in Carsey, there is a scene where he describes the ship coming into harbor in demon land. And he describes every mountain. And he loved the Lake District, I believe, loved mountaineering. And I'm confident he had a particular landscape in mind when he was describing this. The scene happens at twilight and the stars come out. Now, I didn't appreciate this as a kid, but I now think that one of the reasons that I bonded so hard with this book was it had the names. Now, I grew up on a farm, and there were no names. There was no common term, really, for... We had our family references, Arden's Corner, for example. But if you'd ask Arden, where where is Arden's Corner? Arden wouldn't have known. It was just what we used to refer to the angle where our line fence met his property. You know, what what <laughs> what crop goes in this field over by Arden's Corner. And so I was just hungry for this kind of physical familiarity and and these beautiful, I mean, his naming is just, yeah, he does the thing where everybody has like vis, vol, you know, whatever. It, 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 uh, but place names are pretty amazing. Right. And when I went to college from a dairy farm in the early 1970s and met my friends, my people, we did a lot of the thing uh, where you compare cultural notes. Uh, have you read this? Do you own that kind of fishnet stockings or whatever? And in my case, there I was about 15 years behind culturally 
what was sort of common on the coasts. And there were plenty of physical things that I never had. Uh, that, you know, I couldn't say, oh, my pair of fishnet stockings, for example. But I lived in a, a, a dark sky zone. I didn't realize it at the time, but we had stars. And, and the way he talks about our tourists, and most of my friends grew up in the city and had made, you know, make, they could maybe find the Big Dipper. Like, where's our tourists? Well, it's right there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's our tourists. And that made me feel rich in a way that I didn't comprehend at the time. It was, a, it, the landscape was not the character that it is in Lord of the Rings, but it was uh, as important to me as the landscape that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And I think um, I think the slight difference is Lord of the Rings is a world that is our world that exists, and these are landscapes that have existed here. The um, the landscapes are deliberately mythical, right? Costa Privarcha and Costa Belorn, Costa Belorn, and we were just mentioning earlier in the book club. Some people had a hard time because um, the descriptions were very rich, but they felt like they had a hard time getting to the characters. Um, because you never once, maybe except with, with Grow, are ever inside their minds. It's yeah. only by deed and action and speech that yeah. we get to learn these characters, yeah. right? Uh, again, that was a very deliberate choice. But, yeah. but the landscape does reflect sort of the, um, their, their moods, right? Like, you know, over Carsey, when the sky gets dark, when Gorice yeah. is doing his various, you know, rituals. Um, the when they're on Kostra, climbing Kostra Pravartra and Kostra Belorn, that that reflects you know both their joy and despair and you know their hope of finding Goldry. Um, so I think that there is that is very um, again very deliberate. And then maybe for people who are um, deliberately realist, they were like, oh no, that's that oh, doesn't that work. Can't be. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and and it, I went back and looked when I came across this passage that had meant so much to me. I went back and looked to see if there were other places where it was described that vividly with the bad guys. And the only thing that I could find that came close, I mean, earlier in the book, was the scene where they bring the dead king down, the witches bring the dead king down to the end. Ursula Le Guin excerpted that description in her essay from Elfland to Poughkeepsie as an example of, this is what you can do. Uh, Don't. But <laughs> don't try this at home, kids. Right, right. When they're bringing Grice, uh, the eleventh yeah. after he's been killed in the wrestling match. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's Elfland. That's not Poughkeepsie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Firmly. So uh, I guess we were uh, starting to talk about and uh, uh, characters. So the I guess the fascinating thing is that the villains are so vivid <gasps> in this book. Um. And so maybe you could talk about maybe what are some of your favorite characters or, or what are things that uh, you thought were really, uh, you know, effective in terms of depiction of these. Uh, as a kid, uh, a lot of the really impressive things he does eluded me. And I was all about Mevrian. And I remember the day I was so excited. I figured out it was an anagram for Minerva. And Grand Octaha is pretty clearly, you know, like an Apollo kind of thing. Like, oh, yay. Uh, And I was never able to carry that any further, uh, just as well. But reading Presmyra and Corinth as adults, reading Grow, and Patrick Marcel is the man who translated the Wormerobros into French. And fascinating. Get him to talk. Uh, Man, he's incredible. And he said, in his view, Grow is the first instance he can find in literature of survival guilt, at least 
of 20th century fiction, the very earliest one, uh, because this this his and, and his interiority that that we understand how he can't resist the losing side, even though he knows this is the worst possible thing he could do. He's going to switch sides again. Uh, anyway, if you ever have a chance to talk to Patrick Marcel. I think we'll have to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In addition to um, everything that Caroline is saying here, I also think we have some. We also have some pretty. Like she's saying that you you really liked Mevrian when you were a kid. We actually have, I think, even better female characters than we had in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I've got some issues with Queen Sophonispa, but uh, yeah. um, but like even like Prismyra, I think she is like like she's a fully fleshed out character. We we really understand where she's coming from and what motivates her. She seems real. And one of the things that I really like about Edison's approach to this kind of world building as opposed to Tolkien's is the enemies in Tolkien are just wrong. They're just bad. There's no humanity to them. And in a way, the Edison Edison's take on this is much more humane in that you can really understand the humanity on both sides of these wars and both sides of this conflict. And I think he explores them in a really interesting way. With Queen Sophonispa, though, the thing that I've, I, the thing that, that kind of bum, bums me out about Queen Sophonispa is her origin story is she was running through the mountains to avoid being raped. And she decided she chose to leap to her death rather than to be raped. And the gods rewarded that to for her, rewarded her for her bravery and gave her eternal life. And it reminded me of that scene in Birth of a Nation, where the white woman is running from the black man to avoid getting raped by him. And she ends up leaping to her death as well. And the townsfolk all celebrate her for her bravery for making the right decision. And I know that this is just old, old timey thinking that, you know, a woman is better off dead than to be than to have her maidenhood despoiled, um, which is very much a kind of thinking that I am deeply uncomfortable with in 2022. But I also recognize that this is 1922 and the world did not conceptualize things in that way. And I wouldn't expect somebody to be able to conceptualize something in a way that people just weren't doing in 1922. Uh, Queen Sophonisba is so forgettable, even though she plays a pivotal role. Uh, but she does stand for something that we really, really get in the other, in the Simiamvian books that I bounced off of hard. I love the books, but I could never make a place. I mean, he does wonderful women characters when he bothers. Uh, but his his take on it is explicit in some cases when they're doing their little uh, repart, you know, repartee debating in Fish Dinner and Memison. I don't remember exactly where it shows up, but I think in more than one place, we are explicitly told, man does, woman is. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> For those who could not see it, you can imagine. Right, <laughs> right, right. Strong, strong disagreement, Registrar. Right, right. Um, I, and I think it's interesting because um, the most interesting women character, I mean, certainly Mevrian, and she uh, gets to have great action scene, right? She uh, turns out to be a better swordswoman than than Gro, right? When they're, um, <laughs> but uh, Presmira, who could have had it all at the end, and says no, yeah, she could have been the queen of her own kingdoms, and yeah. she was like, nope, nope I'm, I'm not, not doing that. You've, not. you've taken away everything that matters to me, right? And I'm going down with the ship. All right, I'm not going to hand it as a consolation prize. This thing, right? This is like I'm going to get it on my the terms of my partnership 
with Corrind or not. <laughs> yeah. Right. And it's a relatable pride. Like yeah. it's, it's not, it, it feels like it's something real that a person who is so invested in this kind of worldview would absolutely do. Right. And even Shriva, sort of the manipulative daughter of Corsinia, she seems very real anyway. She seems like that spoiled, uh, you know, uh, you know, Kardashian kid or something like that yeah. who's been sent out. <laughs> to, you know. Another another hard C name, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. But um, but she's still a real character in my mind, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and I like that she doesn't quite understand what she's toying with when she's in there with Gorice the Twelfth and she thinks that she's manipulating Gorice and Gorice the whole time has already chosen her father to go and, you know, take on Demon Land, right? And he's just toying with her. Uh, and that's when you realize, oh, Gorice is bad beyond being an evil magician yeah Yeah. (laughs) right and and uh the next thing that i ran into after college i mean during college was warner brothers costume flicks swashbucklers with errol flynn and basil rathbone so you know the kind of visuals that were going in my head what was also interesting for me about reading this is you can really see the bones of what tolkien ended up building on for himself and you can kind of see what Tolkien liked and what Tolkien didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> and but also I was not aware how how proto how proto Middle Earth this is. First off, it's referred to as Middle Earth multiple times throughout the book. The setting is referred to that. Um, but also just like some of the big plot points from the Lord of the Rings trilogy, we see coming straight out of here you know you've got the big wars that are happening but kind of some of the major nobles from it go on the side quest and start by going up a death mountain and the death mountain says no you can't pass me so they go back down the death mountain and then they end up doing a different side quest to get the thing that they need in order to turn the tables onto their side that is straight out of that is straight out of this the advantage of reading this when i was 15 was I had never heard of Henry V. That was not an advantage. That's a disadvantage. But uh, the Battle of Crothering Side, we, we hear about it afterward from a soldier who was there, who has come home to the farm, and he's talking to his father and his wife or his fiance or whatever. And when he, 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 doesn't, he never actually uses the words, a little touch of Harry in the night. But when I did come across Henry V, I'm like, the Battle of Crothering Side is Agincourt, Crossed with the relief of Helm's Deep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I could also see the things that Tolkien didn't like and that Tolkien wanted to change. Because I, I can imagine him being like, oh, it's called Witchland and Impland and Goblinland, but we don't have witches and imps and goblins. And I can see Tolkien being like, I want these like fantasy races in my world. But also I can see Tolkien saying, but I think it's really tacky that they're calling it Witchland, Impland and Demonland. Right. So I want these to have linguistically believable mm-hmm. p- names. And so I I, I, can, I feel like I can see Tolkien's like, saying yes to a bunch of things and saying no to a bunch of things <laughs> right. and then that turning into his life's work all right um one thing i think that tolkien i won't say tolkien took this but it's in parallels you know tolkien's very careful but like this is how much time this thing took and here they're like oh they spent 90 days here and then they spent a week here um mm-hmm. and do that if you may i would like to circle back to we were talking about um you know masculinities because this is an incredibly masculine book although there's great female characters right um but it's like the Witchlanders and the Demonlanders are mirror images of each other, right? They're both Ooh. incredibly uh, heroic, other than Gro, who is very ambiguous. But and they sort of have the same values to an extent. But the Witchlanders fall onto the sort of the toxic side of this heroic masculinity, and the Demonlanders are 
maybe in our modern reading, we would think that they're not that different, but somehow it's not for them. Um, so, yeah, I wonder if you had any thoughts or takes on that, Caroline. You know. I, as a, a reader, the degree of dandification really struck me when I was younger. And knowing more about some of the changes that have happened in how, I mean, the male robin has brighter plumage than the female robin. And in, at least in Western European culture, as I have understood it, it, that used to be the case. I mean, it was men who were wearing the really fabulous clothes and women, yeah, well, whatever. And that, that has kind of turned around in our expectations, but I only wish, I mean, I was young when men had long hair and I wish that would come back even more than it has. <laughs> uh, this attention. I, I now know as an adult that there is just as much attention put into beard style and hairstyle and necktie selection as there is in the point lace that Brand Achraha has festooned himself with or whatever. But it doesn't look that way from the outside, at least mm -hmm. not to my eyes. Mm -hmm. And it was a revelation when I figured out, yeah, it's still there. Right, right. Uh, I think we uh, blame Bro Brumroll for that, right? So they're yes. all black. Oh, very good. Yeah. For, for the last uh, hundred until the until the seventies, with that sort yeah. of revival of the yeah yeah the, the, the curly hair kind of. and, the, yeah. and the big <laughs> hats and the flared suits and what have you. Um, but yeah, Brian Doctor Ha is distinctly depicted as um, borderline feminine, right? As is Gro, but for different reasons. Like for Gro, it's somewhat derogatory, at least as far as the Witchlanders are concerned. But Brian Doctor yeah. Ha is depicted as a very languid. He kind of is a little bit sarcastic, a little bit sort of feminine in his movements. But he is the third best warrior, yeah. right? Yeah. Or, or now the second best warrior in all of yeah. uh, of of uh, Mercury because he had slain Garice the tenth, or right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Where with Tolkien, it's good versus evil or good versus bad. Uh, what we have here is almost more like honor versus pride. Ooh. Yeah. And I feel like that's the thing that you see with George R. R. Martin in, in his like Westeros novels as well. You know, the North is very much like about honor and Witchland is about honor. I'm sorry, no, Demonland. Right. Sorry, Demonland yeah. is about honor. Um, whereas Witchland is power hungry and about pride and greed and domination, uh, which is they're just motivated by different things. But the things that they all seem to have in common, regardless of which side they're on, is they are all people who love war and love going to battle with their swords and love fighting because they're not the ones who die. It's just the thousands of people who underneath them who are dying, but they all, they all, they almost all survive. Right. And if they die, they die heroically. Right. So right, that's right. the, you know, yeah. yeah. And it's a very, like, it's a very old look at war as well. It's a very obviously pre Vietnam look at war. Now I feel like culturally we see war very differently since Vietnam, but this is a time where war was still something that like we really, valued and i'm not sure what, what word i'm looking for there well the the fact that they would rather have the world gape for them and be yeah. destroyed like zeldornius than to give up war mm -hmm. yeah there's nothing for them except war right and speaking on that you know after they've won everything and i'm just going to call her queen sophie uh, so Sophinus, I was, Sophie's good. We'll call her sophie <laughs> when queen sophie comes back and just says to her madam what thinkest thou of these swords and spears? And she answered, Oh, my lord, I think nobly of them, 
for an ill part it were while we joy in the harvest to condemn the tools that prepared the land for it and reaped it. So looking at that from a modern perspective, that would be kind of like saying we should rejoice in the genocide of the, of, of indigenous populations because that's what's giving us the life that we have today, which is not really a view that most of us hold in 2022. Right, right. And they sort of, uh, I mean, they generally don't, mention that too much but goldry does like oh well why would i want to go tame the savages in england um when but at least he's like well but we have a much more worthy opponent if we had witch land again right and so this this eternal return um but jeff you mentioned something interesting and and maybe this is too much to unpack but caroline you were reading this uh at the end of the vietnam war did that have any uh you know how did that sort of i uh, (laughs) my older brother uh served in the navy Mm -hmm during the Vietnam War, and he's still with us, and he's is still incredible. And only lately has he shared with me some of the circumstances that tell me how narrowly he escaped. Mm. And I'm old enough that my high school classmates were the first... Uh, they were the first one when the draft was stopped. Mm, so the first volunteer army the, ones. <laughs> they, they they benefited from the fact that yeah. they were not going to be the tithe to hell mm, that yeah. we were going to pay. And as a result, I I never. This was not war. I mean, this was a, a, a paperback novel. War was a real thing in front of our front porch and the front lawn. My younger brother, who was old enough, I mean, he was just old enough to play with trucks and you know, toys. He dug up a, an area, uh, a play space, and named it Quezon. Hmm. Wow. And played war games out there. So it was, and it was, and that was considered shocking. I mean, people still didn't talk about World War II at all. And, or even, well, uh, this was way too serious to get confused with any kind of cultural echoes. And I wish I could say I was more culturally aware, but no, it was totally, this was my brother, my classmate, uh, very, a very, uh, a live wire. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Cause I was wondering, obviously we know that Tolkien was very much, in, uh, affected by world war one, uh, you know, and his works, this is written after world war one. So the descriptions of combat are quite vivid, but I don't think it has the sort of moral weight that, no. Uh, to no. Edison, because Edison, I don't believe, you know, he's a civil no. servant. I don't think he was in, in the army during World War One. But people have said that this book could not have been written after World War Two because these oh. are essentially supermen. The the demons and the, and the witches are supermen. And that, that idea was discredited for many, many years. Hopefully it's not coming back, but we have weird echoes in our society at the moment. But the idea of the superman was discredited, and so it could not have been written, you know, after World War Two. Um, you know, Thankfully, um, but I'm yeah. glad it exists as a as a working artifact. Um, so, do you want to bring this to gaming a little bit, Jeff? Or absolutely. So, one of the things we like to chat about when we talk about this from a gaming perspective, which is something that as as a, as a novelist, um, as a creative writer, um, you can absolutely be a part of, which is we talk about world building a lot because world building is a lot of what we do when we're doing fantasy role playing games. And when it comes to world building, oftentimes when we're reading stuff, it's like, oh, I want to steal that. Oh, I want to steal that. Like, oh, I want to take that and bring that into one of the worlds that we're creating. 
And I know one of the things that I saw while I was going through this that I really enjoyed is um, on page 13, uh, they say, uh, He knoweth of art magical, yet useth not that art, for it sappeth the light, at the life, and the strength. And I love in fantasy role-playing games when we mechanize um, magic as being something that's drawing from our en energy. I love when in the fiction, as we're casting magic, we're getting weaker and losing our vital essence, which isn't something I see terribly often in fantasy role-playing games that I'd really like to see more of. But I'm curious, did, any, did either of you see things that you thought was really interesting or fun world-building that you think would be fun to take and move into a different context? I'm pretty sure that in the Serpent's Egg, I actually did that, with kind of not meaning to. Yeah, it's it's a fun world to play around in. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I can't think of specific examples of, you know, except for the poetry thing off the top of my head. But um, it was an accident. I didn't mean to. I'm really sorry. I'll never do it again. <laughs> well, let's say you were to, whether as fiction or collaborative storytelling, say, hey, I want to, I would love to revisit you know, demon land and, and uh, you know, witch land and, you know, the ghouls that we hear about off screen. Like how, like what kind of story would you like to tell? Would you tell a story of the commoners? Cause we only see the commoners from that one scene with the husband yeah. coming back or the various great ladies or one of these other lands. What would you like really pique your interest about? Like if I would had a chance to tell a story what, or maybe in a shared, shared world anthology about, you know, the demon land, what would Pique your interest. I, I love the idea of uh, a, a young. Far, how many farm boys are there out there? Good God! But uh, a young dependent of a farmer in Demonland, having his point of view on the survivors of the of the Battle of Crothering side coming home. Okay, that'd be great. Yeah, and then now that this is eternal return, would this young person gets sucked up into the next cycle of this or would they say no wow. i've seen this thing before and you know yeah no we're not going yeah, yeah. what son i have no son yeah he's actually my daughter hmm. <laughs> or or whatever uh and he has just invented his own personal dirigible <laughs> to, get that, get to get out of here yeah. <laughs> phenomenal phenomenal that is amazing another thing that really um made me very happy when i read this is when I was living in New York and um, when I was kind of early living in New York in my 20s, I started gaming with a group of people who um, I had found through... Um, oh, I'm forgetting the name of that store. Hoy, what was the name of that gaming store on West 23rd Street that was on like the third floor? Oh, it wasn't Fantasy Grounds, was it? Or something like that? Um, no. But it was the one where they played all the magic stuff, right? And it was upstairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That space was amazing. And... I remember just like there's like there's a bulletin board where you could find people to game with. And that's how me and this guy named Zach Holbrook ended up getting hooked up together. And me and Zach game together for a few years. But one of my favorite things about Zach's games, and it's such a dumb little thing, but he loved incorporating owlbears in his game, but he didn't make them owlbears. He made them cat bears. So they're just like owlbears, have the same stats, but they have cat heads instead of owl heads. So when on page 45, I saw that the red foliate called for his cat bears and said, oh, cat bears, dance before us, since dearly we delight in your dancing. <laughs> it just made me so happy because I just, I'm like, yay, cat right, bears. Right, he I loves miss cat them. bears and he kisses the cat bears on the mouth after they're done dancing. <laughs> <laughs> it's very funny. <laughs> I think there's a weird little dividing line now between um, even in fantastic fiction where people demand certain uh, these days like oh like fully worked out magic systems that are very um, 
they're almost like a, a, a literal substitute for technology. It's like, oh, you know, and then, and if, they, if there's some kind of unexplained thing in your magic system, then it doesn't work. But, but then I'm saying, but it's magic. It's supposed to be weird and mysterious. <laughs> and, um, and, and so, uh, you know, I mean, you've written a series about um, um, a college of magic. Uh, what's your, what's your kind of your take on like, you know, where if, I guess it's for every world, but what's this, what's the proper dividing line there? Oh, I, I College of Magics came out of my, and it predates Harry Potter by a long, long, long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was, I started writing it when I was in college in the late seventies and mid seventies. Oh, come on, be honest, seventy three. <laughs> uh, and uh, I really didn't care for the kind of cookbook magic where. You have students in a class, and they are told, take a tablespoon of this. And I'm old enough that I was in home economics class, and nothing good comes out of a tablespoon of this and you know, <laughs> nothing. And when I went to college, nothing was like that. No class ever, even the lab ones, said, take a tablespoon of this and do that. It was, here's your reading list. Here's what you need to bring next time. You're on your own, kid. And... I spent a lot of my time trying to figure out kind of by om- what by omission have they told me about what they really want. And I learned, I mean, I was supposed to learn to think and who even knows if I succeeded, but uh, they did their best. And in college of magics, it's a, a fin- kind of a finishing school for ma- magicians, women magicians, but it's 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 as close as I could get to depicting that kind of experience of, I don't know, there'll be an exam, I guess, uh, the world's longest take-home essay test, uh, but I, what I'm really learning is, is how to learn. And not coincidentally, I did not, but uh, the protagonist does get expelled. <laughs> there you go. And, and so I think that's almost the quest right i mean to you have in um with adversity he essentially has to leave and and here's not so much that he's learning to learn he's learning to be in with adversity right good um and that's maybe what maybe we've lost even i, I work in higher ed um ah. that we've also kind of lost because it's come kind of vocational and there's nothing wrong with vocational skills but right part the of te- the, teaching to a test yeah is a different thing right yeah um, but the part of the value of the university or any form is is as a learning how to be, learning how to learn. And I think we're maybe moving away from that a little bit, unfortunately, at the moment. And, and being come, becoming oddly literalistic even in our science fiction and fantasy reading, right? <laughs> right. Well, is this a good point to start wrapping things up then? So, Caroline, do you have any last thoughts about the worm or Boris or anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get a chance to get into? Oh, golly. I had forgotten how much I loved this book. And I wonder if it isn't kind of the Ikea effect, because I had to put so much effort into climbing through the prose and making my way through the red foliate and all those freaking descriptions of banquet halls that maybe I love it more because I had to work so hard to get there and climb over the hill to view the, the far-off mountains of Simi Amphia. Yeah, I think you are in this book. I think that's very well said. How about you, Hoy? Um, I really enjoyed this book. And I, again, I think like you, Jeff, I don't think 
I've wanted to read this book for years, but I don't think I would have read this book except for this project. Um, I've had copies of this book floating around from time to time and I've looked at it and said, I should read that someday. I should read that someday. <laughs> it's like, oh, maybe I'll read it. And I know now that this was the right time. If I tried to read this, I think you were uh, maybe the, uh, everybody has a right time. But if I tried to read this when you had first read this, Caroline, I don't think I would have succeeded. And I don't think I would have succeeded in my mid twenties or in, even in my thirties. It's really right about now that it's the time I was able to read this. So, um, and if I'd read this earlier, I might've taken the wrong things from it also mm, in my mind mm. also. So, and I just want to close by um, talking about the second to this, the second to last chapter of this book, the latter end of all the Lords of Witchland. I was really moved by that second to last chapter, the moment where um, they've come into um, they've come into the castle, and all of the Lords of Witchland have been poisoned by one of the other Lords. And much of the castle's in ruin because of what King Garice had failed to to do, and Prismyra is standing about. And at first, she's being um, being blamed for this, but then she herself drinks of the poison, and then just ends up um, speaking. And they make it very clear that his voice is choked with tears, and he tells everybody that Corind and his lady shall none depart from one another. But in one grave shall they rest side by side for their love's sake. Ere we be gone, I will rear them such a monument as beseemeth great kings and princes. So I just, I loved that even, even when they have defeated this other side in battle, we're not dehumanizing them. We're not making them this horrible other that deserve to die. Instead, we're building them up as really worthy human beings who are also um, worth honoring in their in their death, and I thought that was really beautiful. And I actually got a little teary eyed when I read that part. Yeah, no, it's it's great. I mean, otherwise, what would have it been worth? Because if it was just <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. But then the very very end kind of undermines that a bit for me. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, now they just want to continually live in this loop. But right, right. But I mean, they'll I, be sorry. They'll be so <laughs> sorry. Right. And obviously, that's a sort of reflection to this. this is a very pre modern, pre Christian. This is that's the Valhalla, right? We've woken up in Valhalla, and we get to do this over yeah. and over again. And there's there's sort of consequences, but not real consequences. And so they get to be almost boys. Forever. And, and Justin even says, like, I'm still young. He's 33 at the end of this book, right? And he says he's still considered young by the standards of uh, Demonland. And, and, and also, since Caroline, you mentioned they have no parents, right? So they are boys in a way, the, the lords of Demonland, right? And, and uh, with World War One, uh, people will talk, I mean, Bertie Wooster, uh, yeah. you know, the you were young a lot longer before World War One, <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. It's funny because yeah, the lifespan was shorter, but you weren't considered really an adult until you were like 30. You know, yeah, yeah. The same way that Frodo is not an adult until he's like 50 yeah. or 60, right? In, in, <laughs> in uh, The Lord of the Rings, right? So, uh, All right. So, Caroline, how um, do you have any uh, projects or, or books or anything like coming out that you want people to know about? Uh, well, I am in the. I am writing the sequel to The Glass Magician, which takes Ooh. place in 1906. And since it concerns the adventures of a young woman stage magician in vaudeville, uh, and she was in New York in 1905, in 1906 she kind of has to be Leave in San, San Francisco. Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. There you go. Amazing. And um, how can people uh, stay on top of what you're doing? Is there a social media, a website? What's the best thing to do? I, I do, I do tweet from time to time. Uh, C. Steve Rimmer three is my handle. 
whatever. And uh, I have actually I have two websites. The more complete one, the one that Google finds, is has an absolutely indecipherable moniker. Uh, it's the Authors Guild. It's I, Google it. It'll probably come up first. And then I also have carolinestevermer.com. And ultimately, I will... Basically, technically, I'm so bad that if I break one, then the other one's still up. <laughs> perfect, perfect. <laughs> and and on, on the website, there is cstevermer at yahoo.com. And I do have a newsletter. And if you email me there, I'll see if I can add you to the, the list. It's strictly opt-in. Perfect. So. All right, there you go. So just Google Caroline Stevermer and one of the two websites will show up. I hope. <laughs> and the one that has the really incomprehensible URL is the one that's more yeah. up to date slightly. <laughs> there you go. All right. Um, for our listeners, if you would like to uh, give us some feedback, do please email us at uh, appendixnbookclub at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. Uh, if you like us, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It does help people find us. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? Our patrons are able to join us for our recordings, or I'm sorry, for our patron book clubs prior to the recordings. And today we are joined by Robert Coleman, Dan Alexander, Robbie Fioto, Joseph Hoopman, and Adam Styers. Thank you for joining us. I would also like to give a shout out to a new patron, Robert Prince. Robert, thank you for your support. And we're also going to give a shout out to a few of our other randomly selected patrons. I pulled 10 names out of a hat. And our patrons we are acknowledging today are Rose City Politics, Adam Monier, Stephen Fritter, By Grinstow, Eric Hallstrom, Andrew Sternick, Sean Birch, Justin Hamilton, Brandon Cruz, and Carso Torvald. Thank you for your support. Also, our patrons are able to vote on which books we are going to be covering. And our patron polls are in for episodes 129 and 130. Uh, you patrons have chosen that for episode 129, we are covering Ursula K. Le Guin's The Farthest Shore. And for episode 130, we are covering... Um, Hoy, please tell me if I'm spelling if I'm pronouncing this incorrectly. Um, Arkady and Boris Stragatsky, Str I think Stragatsky is hard to be a god. That is what we'll be covering for episode 130. And uh, Hoy, when this episode drops, so will the poll for episode 132. What books are going to be on that poll? Yeah, it's getting hard these days. Um, I think that we're going to do since we've been talking about bad guys, we'll do orcs. We've done elves everywhere, so we'll do orcs everywhere this time. Uh, without a Tolkien reference. Uh, so we have uh, Travis Baldry's Legends and Lattes, uh, Mary Gentle's Grunts, Scott Odin's A Gathering of Ravens, and Jay Zachary Pike's Orconomics. So, so uh, please vote on one of those, and we'll see. Nice. And um, Caroline, I personally promise you that we will be including um, some of your titles in a very soon poll. Yep, we always do. A, a, every once in a while, we do a Friends of the Show one, but then we sort of that's kind of unfair to you because then we're pitting actual friends against each other <laughs> <laughs> unless of course the, i mean i may just have to do a poll where the theme is uh which caroline steven no, that's sure. possible. Oh, oh, we read? <laughs> yeah we'll do that so we'll just put four of your books against yeah we'll do each that other. we'll do that with ellen one of these days as well oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. Well, it's been a blast having you on. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. And Ellen was right. She said you guys were absolutely amazing. Oh, uh, very sweet. Thank her for, for us too as well. <laughs> All right. All right, everybody. It's been an honor and a pleasure. So see you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>